If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're looking this evening at verses 13 to 21. If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 1014, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. And as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me tonight as we look at God's Word. And before we do, let's go to him in prayer and let's ask for his blessing on our fellowship tonight as he speaks to us through the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Our Father, you have told us that when your word is preached in truth and when the gospel is preached, that Christ is speaking. You have told us that we cannot call on you unless we have heard from the Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we are told in Ephesians that you came and preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. And so we pray that you would preach peace to us this evening. We pray that you would draw near to us. We pray that we would know you in your office as prophet and in your office as king, serving your office as priest for the salvation and the sanctification of our souls. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make us to hear more clearly tonight than ever before the voice of the good shepherd. For you have said that you know your sheep and you call them by name and they follow you. And so, Lord Jesus, please do that for us. Please meet with us and bless your word as you have promised. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And I would just remind you that Peter in verses 3 through 12 has set out all the glories of the gospel, everything that we have in Christ, much in the same way that Paul does that in Paul's letters. And now in a sense, turning to apply those truths, he says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and and I like the King James Version or New King James Version better, therefore, gird up the loins, because literally in the Greek, it's gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded, set your hope fully or perfectly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ." like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a great little line in the Hunger Games where the president and he is trying to figure out what to do with the districts that are on the brink of rebellion and tearing apart and he's being counseled to just obliterate them and he says at this point he says hope is the only thing stronger than fear a little hope is effective a lot of hope is dangerous I was struck the first time I heard that it's actually not a true statement at all Um, hope is hope is stronger than fear that's true A little hope is effective, that's also true. A lot of hope is dangerous is not true. In fact, Peter would tell us that the more hope we have and the more sure and grounded hope we have in Jesus, the 
more transformation we're going to have in our life, the more joy we're going to have in the midst of trials, the more hope we're going to have in hoping for the glory to come, the more confidence we're going to have, the more fortitude we're going to have, and we are going to make it to that inheritance that God is keeping for us that is imperishable, that does not fade away, that is reserved for us in heaven, Peter says. And everything about Peter, as we've talked already, is that Peter is, is setting hope before the people of God, hope before people that are suffering. Peter is telling them that Christians, no matter what the circumstances of their life, no matter what the trials of their life, no matter what God may put in their life, and he even says, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Nevertheless, the Christian is one that ought not be shaken by those trials, but ought to hope for the revelation of Jesus and the glory that awaits them. I want to read to you that quote again that I think captures so well everything that Peter is saying. Gerhardus Voss says, The Christian is a man, according to Peter, who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in full view. His outlook is not bounded by the present life in the present world. And I would say even political ideologies and interest and whatever else good things even we may have. The Christian, his outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. Listen to this. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present but in the future. This is a description of a Christian. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present, but in the future. Hope, not possession, is that which gives tone and color to his life. His is the frame of mind of the heir who knows himself entitled to large treasures upon which he will enter at a definite point of time. Treasures which will first enable him to become a man and develop his powers to their full capacity and every one of whose thoughts therefore projects itself into the period when he shall have become of age and enjoy the full fruition of his hope. What Vasish just said is everything that Peter has told us in verses 3 through 12, that the entirety of the Christian's outlook ought to be one of hope. And so tonight we're going to see as Peter continues writing to these uh, spiritual exiles, and he's writing to us who are pilgrims and strangers, he now turns to give the implications and he gives the cash value of everything that he said we have through the resurrection of Jesus. He's told us that he begot us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to that inheritance. He's told us that God has worked, the triune God has worked, the Father has called us, the Son by his blood cleanses us and and the spirit sanctifies us and he's given us all the privileges that we have and now in verse 13 he says therefore he says therefore my mom and maybe yours did always used to teach me whenever you see a wherefore or therefore you say what's the wherefore therefore and that's the biggest rule and the most simple rule of reading your bible and peter is relating everything he's going to say in verse 13 to everything that he has said in verses 3 through 12 And so we want to read it that way. And what Peter's going to tell us, very simply, he's going to tell us two things. First, he's going to say that the believer is called to a Jesus-centered hope, and the believer is called to a Jesus-centered holiness. A Jesus-centered hope 
and a Jesus-centered holiness. And notice that he says in verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are many who love the doctrine of holiness, and every conversation needs to be about holiness, and every book that they read has to be about holiness, and you would think that the totality of the Christian life and every blessing we get from Jesus is merely and only holiness. And you would think in some of those conversations when you talk to individuals, and I've known them and maybe you've known them, that what they view is the implications of the gospel as leading you to some kind of austere and cold and inward and inward-focused semblance of their idea of holiness. And yet when Peter enters into the subject of holiness, which is the fruit of the gospel, which Christ purchased for us, which is the goal in the Christian life, in the here and now, he tells us first and foremost that, that we, are called, we are called to a Jesus-centered hope. Now, here's where you have to listen carefully. You might say, well, didn't he just talk all about hope? Isn't this just redundant? Didn't he already tell us all about hoping in the inheritance, and now you're just preaching the same sermon to us again? Hope, 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 hope. Every sermon's about hope. And here's what I would say. I'd say that there is an inexorable connection between the hope of the Christian and the holiness of the Christian, and that the holiness of the Christian flows from the hope of the Christian, and the hope of the Christian is fixed on the person of Jesus Christ. And here specifically, Peter's telling us that it's fixed on the second coming of Jesus. You know, there are, there are millions of people, professing Christians, who are consumed with the doctrine of the second coming and look at it like some kind of Rubik's Cube uh, intellectual game to figure out. And, and the majority of the New Testament, when it talks about the second coming, it gives you one very clear and simple uh, conclusion that as we are hoping and waiting for the coming of Christ, that ought to produce in our lives Christ-likeness. And that it ought to produce hope of being with Christ. And here Peter tells us that it begins in the mind. That the call to to a Jesus-centered hope that we'll we'll see in a second result in a Jesus-centered holiness is a call that begins in the mind. And everything else that Peter writes starts with the mind. It was Eric Alexander who said, and I think he's, he's right in saying this, that many people will say, well, I don't like that preaching. They preach over my head. And most of the times when people say that, it's probably because they're unregenerate and they can't understand the scriptures. There are those rare occasions when there are men that preach over the heads of people. But I love how Eric Alexander then says, but my friends, he says, a minister must, pre- must preach to the head to get to the heart. A minister must preach to the head to get to the heart. You cannot bypass the mind. In fact... I think that what Peter's telling us is that a hopeless life, a life that's driven by fear, a life that's driven by legal paralysis, a life that's driven by a feeling of constant condemnation, a life that's uh, a life of despair and gloom and desperation and despondency and every other adjective we could heap up to explain the life that we don't want to live starts in the mind of the person who's experiencing that. And that something's gone wrong in the thinking. And so Peter, when he introduces this subject and he says that, that we are to set our hope perfectly on the revelation of Jesus Christ and the grace that's to come to us when he's revealed that future grace and that future hope, he says that we are to gird up 
the loins of our mind. Now, there's something you need to know. The Bible is one big meta-narrative. It's one big storyline. And Peter being the Jewish, uh, the Jewish man that he was, having grown up knowing the Old Testament like he did, is everywhere setting the Old Testament and redemptive history as the background of what he's writing. And here, I think, when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, that should carry us all the way back to the Exodus, where God told the Israelites when he was about to bring them out, and when they had that hope of deliverance, he said, gird, gird up your, your belt, have your staff ready, have your sandal on your feet, and be ready to go. It was a call to action. It was a call to hope full action. The Israelites had not seen redemption. They had never experienced Redemption. You know, I often, often get a kick whenever I hear skeptics, you know, the ones that think they're so intelligent, and they say, everybody knows that, you know, seas don't part. That's the point. That's the point. Seas don't part. There's only one time the Red Sea has ever parted. That's the point. When they say virgins don't have babies, we know. That's the point. I think Mary knew that. Mary knew virgins don't conceive. Joseph knew that. The Israelites had never experienced redemption. They had never, they did not have in their possession everything God had promised them. But he said, make sure that your waist are girded, your sandals are on your feet, your staff is in your hand, be ready to go when I bring you out. And God is saying to us, gird up the loins of your mind. The totality of our time as pilgrims and sojourners here, and Peter has that in view. I think that's that picture of Israel in the wilderness. He has that, that sojourning picture in view. The totality of our life here is not a life of possession, but hope. Boss says it's not a life of possession. It's not a life of having already made it. Paul tells us that. Paul says, not having attained, but I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. And so Peter is telling a people who have already been born again, who already have the blessings of God, who have already been redeemed by Jesus, to gird up the loins of their mind, to think properly about what they have and who they are. And, and the biggest way that that manifests itself in our life, notice, Peter says, and I think the first two phrases, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober-minded, are descriptions of this phrase, set your hope perfectly on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I need all the grace I can get from Jesus. I need every ounce of grace I can get from Jesus. I need every pardoning word of Jesus. I need every sweet promise of Jesus. I need every single phrase in the Bible that says, I will not remember your sins. I will pardon you for my namesake. I will have mercy on you. I will receive you. I will love you. I will break my kindness open on your heads forever and ever and ever. I need every single ounce of Jesus's grace. And I know that you need every single ounce of Jesus's grace, even if you don't think that you need every single ounce of Jesus's grace. And Peter says that there is more grace that Jesus is going to bring in full when he comes. That when believers see Jesus, it is going to be a full manifestation of his grace to us. And whatever little bit of his grace we think we get now 
is going to pale in unbelievable comparison to the moment when we see Jesus Christ. And if you think you've experienced God's grace, and if you think you've had manifestations of God's grace, it will be as nothing to the full manifestation that Jesus brings. And Peter is telling us that. Notice, he says, be sober-minded, gird up the ones in your mind. That is, essentially, set your hope perfectly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to pass by this too quickly tonight. I know some of you may say, yeah, let's get on as obedient children. Don't conform yourself to the former lust, as in your ignorance, and, and cast off all that wickedness. You will never do that until you get this. You will never cast off your former lust until you get that you are to set your hope perfectly on the grace that's to be brought to you. John Piper wrote a whole book, and I think in many places very helpful, called Future Grace. And he says that the Christian's life is largely to be lived in hope of that future grace, and that the Christian's life will flow out of that future grace, so that if we're not hoping, if we're not hoping in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, nothing else is going to follow. Now, I want to point something out to you tonight besides what I've already said there, and that is that from verses 14 to 17, there is going to be a radical call to holiness, which we'll see here in a moment. But notice that verse 13 and then verse 18 to 21 are all about what we have in Christ. It's sandwiched together. Verse 13, grace at the revelation of Jesus. So Jesus is coming. He's bringing all the grace for his people. He's going to glorify his people. He's going he's to give us the full realization of all of his grace and mercy. In, uh, undeserved. Not because we've done good enough, but because that's going to be the consummation of everything he's already done for us at the cross. And then notice what Peter does after he gives the radical call to holiness. Notice what he says in verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So what Peter has done is before he even gets to the call to holiness, as he's talking about the call to hope in, in the Lord Jesus and the grace we're going to get from him, he has said that we are to have our minds renewed to be perfectly and fully hoping in the grace to come to us at the second coming while we are knowing that he has redeemed us with his precious blood in his first coming. Do you see how the totality of your life as a Christian needs to be understood in light of that? The future hope of grace in Jesus, the present reality that you've already been redeemed and ransomed and forgiven and purchased by his blood. And then notice that when Peter goes on to talk about Christ, it's, it's as if he takes one step forward in application, and then he takes 20 steps back to the indicatives, the facts. Notice what he says in verse 20. Not only does he tell you that Jesus is coming and he's bringing grace with him, not only does he tell you that you've already been redeemed by his precious blood, but he goes back to eternity and he says he was foreordained before the ages for you. Now, what Peter's doing is he's showing you how sure and secure the Christian life is in Jesus. He's showing you that the hope that we have is in Christ. He's already told us that though we don't see him, yet we love him. Though we don't 
see him, yet we believe in him, and we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then he tells us he's coming again, and he's bringing all his grace to us. And then he tells us, remember, you were bought with his precious blood. He's already redeemed you. And then he goes back to eternity and he says, God, the father foreordained Jesus. He is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And that means your salvation is not in any way whatsoever dependent on what you do. That's what that means. In no way whatsoever and, and I'm going to argue here in a moment that not even your sanctification is dependent on you. It's dependent on who Christ is. It's dependent on what Jesus has done. It's dependent on God's eternal foreordination of Jesus to be the Redeemer and to choose you in Christ and to appoint him to be the perfect Redeemer, the Lamb without blemish and without spot. It's actually remarkable that when Peter comes to apply these truths in the call to be holy as God is holy, one of the things that he does is he notes how spotted and blemished we actually are. The call is actually to know that we've been cleansed because we are so spotted and so blemished. There's a a stark contrast. We are called away from our former conduct. We are called away from the lust of the flesh and all the ways that we live in corruption He is the lamb without blemish and without spot. There is something separate about Jesus from us. There is something about Jesus that is put out preeminently that is not true of us so that our thoughts go to Jesus and we realize he was the holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners savior that I need. And God appointed him for that. And he kept himself perfectly pure, and he offered himself as a lamb on the altar of God's wrath. I was reading this week in Leviticus, and in the first um, seven chapters, those six offerings are set out in sequential order. And the first offering is the burnt offering. And the priest in the temple was to keep the fire burning perpetually, which showed that God's wrath never goes out, that he's a consuming fire, that, that the lamb that was burned up in that, or the ox that was burned up in that, didn't put that flame out. But Jesus put that flame out. That flame went out the moment Jesus was offered on the cross. He was the lamb without blemish and without spot. We sang it tonight. The lamb who is my righteousness. The lamb who is my righteousness. And so in that call to hope, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. There's a, there's a striking similarity between Peter's letter and the letter to the Hebrews. And in the Hebrews, in the letter to Hebrews, I don't know if you've seen those little, there's these little phrases. They're wonderful little phrases. Consider him. Consider him. Looking unto Jesus. We see Jesus. That the Christian life is looking at him and considering him and meditating on all that he is for us and all that he did for us and seeing him in the pages of scripture. This, I think, is why Peter gave us those words we looked at last week in, in verses 10 through 12, that the whole of the Bible is about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. And I want to say this this morning. When your minds are renewed and when our minds are recalibrated to the truth about Christ, we will be a people that hope. We will be a hope-filled people. And what happens to us, though, we go out, we go into our week, we have 
we have interactions and conversations and we busy ourselves and trials come and difficulties come and somebody says something nasty and somebody does something nasty and something nasty happens and life is just hard. I counseled somebody this week. Oh, our life. I said, listen, everybody's life. It just gets harder and harder and harder. And yet the Christian has a sure and steadfast confidence rooted in the Lord Jesus. And it's only in the Lord Jesus. And any other attempt for people to conjure up, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, when people that don't know Christ, this is only for believers, this is only for people who have been ransomed. People that don't know Christ are trying a thousand different ways to find some kind of hope to hold on to, and they can't find any hope in this world to hold on to. There's absolutely nothing in this world for unbelievers to hold on to that will give them any sense of lasting hope. If they put it in a person, that person could die. If they put it in a job, that job could be lost. If they put it in substances, they're not going to satisfy. If they put it in any experience that they have, the experiences, they come and go, and they vanish away, and they were great when we have them, and then that's it. And then you have people that fall back on, on memories, and they, they live life when they were young, and they think back of all the experiences. And remember in high school, high school was it, terrible for me. But, and I've never understood people that actually found the zenith of their life in high school. It's a very sad thing, actually. Um, as I consider it, but high school was so wonderful. And remember when we did this and this and this, and it's all empty. And it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't give anybody hope. And it doesn't produce any joy. And it doesn't get anybody through the hardship. And it doesn't do anything for the souls of people. But Jesus Christ is full of the hope that we need. And he tells us, he commands us to set your hope perfectly on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the first point. Second, it's a call to Jesus-centered holiness. Notice what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him who, as father, judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile or sojourning here, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with the precious blood of Christ. Now, I want to say a few things because the word holy is one of the most difficult words to define in the Bible. I think when most people think of holy, they think stodgy, not fun mean-spirited, austere, harsh. I think generally when you talk about someone, you think when they say, you know, oh, are they holy? And they put on the holy voice to say it. I don't even know. There's a holy voice. I don't know if you know that. In certain theological circles, ministers put on the holy voice. And there's a sense of, there's a sense of external pretension And that's not what Peter's talking about. In fact, notice that Peter actually gives us another spiritual blessing that we have in Jesus in the call to holiness. What does he say? Notice this. He introduces something he hasn't even done before. In verse 14, as obedient children, you've been adopted into God's family. God has become your father in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you have received the right to be called children of God. 
Now, usually when we think about being the children of God, we think of God's fatherly provision. We think of God's care for us. We think of the way that he, he heals us and the way that he, he provides for our needs, for food and for clothing and other aspects of life. We think of his tenderness, and we should think of all of that. We should think of God as our father, as the most loving and tender and providing father that anyone could ever imagine. But we tend not to think of him the way the Bible also presents him as a father who cares deeply about the the character of his children and the lives of his children and the obedience of his children. And one of the benefits that we have as being children of God is that we are being made into the image of the son of God and we bear the family likeness. That's one of the greatest blessings of being adopted into God's family is that we bear the family likeness. We should start to look like God. Now, God does not say, as obedient children, be omnipotent, for I am omnipotent. He doesn't say, as obedient children, be omniscient, as I am omniscient. I was actually thinking about this this week. You know, God will say, be holy, for I am holy. And that's, that's an attribute that he can share with us and does share with us, his holiness and his uprightness and his separateness and his purity, and we'll define all this in a minute. Um, but, but most of us don't want that. We want to be omnipotent and omniscient. So most people want God to say, be omnipotent as I'm omnipotent, be omniscient as I'm omniscient. They spend most of their time getting as much power, as much knowledge, and Probably ubiquitous, too. Be everywhere present as I'm everywhere present. Be omnipresent. They want to be the three things that only God can be. And God says, be holy for I am holy. And he says, I am going to share the overflowing bounty of my character and my goodness. Now, how do we define holiness? B.B. Warfield, I think, very helpfully says, there is no idea so positive as that of holiness. It is the very climax of positiveness. So don't think about holiness as a negative, uh, sapping the happiness out of my soul. That's not what holiness is. Warfield said, it is the very climax of positiveness. Now, it's not power of positive thinking, but of goodness and rightness. Now, listen, Warfield said, it is hard to express this positiveness in a definite way, simply because this idea is above the ideas expressed by any of its synonyms. Now, you have to listen very carefully. It is more than sinlessness, though it is, of course, including the idea of sinlessness. It is more than righteousness, although it includes the idea of righteousness. It is more than wholeness, complete soundness, and integrity, and rightness, Though, of course, it includes these ideas. It is more than simpleness, high simplicity, and guilelessness, though it includes this too. It is more than purity, though, of course, it includes this too. Holiness includes all these and more. It is God's. Here it is. It is God's whole, entire, absolute, inconceivable, and therefore inexpressible completeness and perfection of separation from and opposition to an ineffable revulsion from all that is in any sense or degree, however small, evil. All those words were necessary. It is, it is opposed 
and revulsed by anything, no matter how small, that is evil. God hates the smallest, tiniest, in our twisted minds, whitest little sin that we can imagine. So holy is our God that one sin against an infinite and eternal, an absolutely holy God deserves infinite and eternal punishment. And if there were only one sinner on the face of the earth, if God had stopped with all that he did the moment that Adam reached out his hand and took a piece of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which God said, in the day that you eat of it and dying you will die, if God had stopped right there, Jesus Christ would have had to endure everything that he endured on the cross just to redeem Adam. Jesus would have had to gone through hell, as it were, on the cross just to pay for that one sin. And our problem is not that we think too too much of God's holiness. Even when we think about God as holy, we have warped views of what that means. Our problem is we think way, 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 way too little of what it means that God's holy. And if we understood that God has redeemed us and purchased us, notice verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, we would understand more of God's holiness that he had to give up his infinitely perfect son, that he gave up the eternal son of God whose soul was made an offering for our sin. I love the book, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, where Anselm is trying to convince his um, assistant, Boso, um, of why God had to become man and die on the cross. And, and Boso doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. And Anselm finally essentially says to his assistant, oh, Anselm, or Boso, he said, oh, Boso, probably where we got Boso the clown from, Boso, he said, you have not adequately come to realize what your sin deserves. You have not yet adequately come to realize. You don't get the incarnation because you have not adequately come to realize what your sin deserves. I think what Peter would have us focus on tonight as we look at verses 18 and 19 is that the call to be holy and the call to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here, not conforming ourselves to what we once did conform ourselves to, and turning away from what we've lived in and practiced and that has marked our lives. And notice Peter doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't act like Christians have it all together. He actually assumes that they all have past in which they've lived as fallen creatures in a fallen world, living according to the dictates of Adam, passed down generation after generation after generation, received, he says, by tradition from your fathers. But you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. I actually think, I think, I've, I can't prove this, I think Peter is meditating on Psalm 49. And in Psalm 49, David says, speaking about the rich in this world, he says that they think that their lands are going to go on forever and they name their lands after themselves and men praise you when you do well for yourself and they think their possessions are going to go on forever and ever and all their hope is bound up in their children 
And then Peter says, but none of them can by any means ransom or redeem his brother for the redemption of their souls is costly. It's a verbatim from Psalm 49. The redemption of their souls is costly. I believe that when we understand that the redemption of our souls costs the infinitely valuable blood of the Son of God, that we will get a greater sense of God's holiness. We will be motivated to be holy as he is holy. We will understand better what holiness is and what it costs God to purchase that holiness for us. That we will realize, as Paul said, that, we were, that we're not our own, that we were bought with a price. That you have been bought. This is the most remarkable thought. I said this to you a couple sermons ago. That the most valuable thing that you have is the faith that Peter talks about, the preciousness of your faith. But here he talks about the preciousness of the blood that redeems the people of God. That means that Christians, no matter how nerdy or annoying or burdensome or bothersome or tiring or needy or groveling or, or unattractive or needy, I've already said that, I'll say it again, no matter how needy they are, no matter what they're like, they have been bought at the most costly price in the whole universe. And God has purchased his people to be set apart and to be like him and to live in this world, showing forth that they are the children of God. This will not result, and I'm going to close our time saying this, this will not result with you retreating into a cave like the monks did, the monastic movement. It's, that's, that's a wrong view of holiness. This is not going to result in you going home and whipping yourself and flogging yourself. It's not going to result in you going and being heavy-handed with other people, as we saw, saw this morning. What this will do, this will send us out into this world, not to be like the world, but to be in the world as a witness to God. You know, one of the things that kings did when they went in and they conquered a certain land in the ancient Near East was they set up a a statue. And you see this in Nebuchadnezzar. There's one example. And they would set up that statue of themselves, and that would functionally say, here's my image, I am the king. And what God did in the Garden of Eden was he, he put his image in the garden on Adam and on Eve. And he said, I am king. Here's my image in knowledge and righteousness and in holiness. And then we came along and we, we graffitied all over that image and we perverted that image and distorted it and tried to destroy it. And so God came in the person of Christ, the second Adam. And he is the image of the everlasting God. And when you see Jesus, you see God. Jesus said to Philip, Philip said, show us the Father and it's sufficient. Jesus said, Philip, how long have I been with you and have you not known me? When you see Jesus, you see God. When you see Jesus in all of his love and approachableness, he had prostitutes come up to him and weep. Tax collectors, rebels, the wickedest and most rebellious people that we would be tempted to be heavy-handed with came to Jesus weeping over his graciousness. That's holiness. They saw that he was not like them, but they were drawn to him. And so when God says, be holy as I am holy, and I sent my son to die for you, 
and I purchased you with the costly blood. And I I brought you so that you won't live in wicked and rebellious ways. He doesn't mean that we won't go out and we won't be gracious and merciful and show forth that renewed image in us. God is renewing his image in you so that when people see you, they should say, there's something about them that is otherworldly. There's something about them that's not like this present fallen evil age. And they should be drawn to you. There's a lot here. I know I've gone longer than I'd planned. I want to encourage you to give yourself this week ahead to a, a diligent consideration that you have been called to hope perfectly in the revelation of Jesus and the grace that's to be brought to you, and you are called to pursue the holiness that he has purchased you for. Those are the two things that Peter applies, all the benefits of Christ to you. And you get to apply that in every way possible, in the home, in the workplace, in church, in relationships, the way you talk about people, the way you talk to each other. In every single way possible, this should sink down and this should produce hope and joy and holiness in your lives. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge how much we need to have our minds renewed and uh, girded up with the truth and to have you enable us to set our hope perfectly and fully upon the grace that's to be brought to us at the revelation of your Son. Our God, we pray that you would do that for us. We are desperately in need of that. We pray that you would also make us to know more of your holiness and more of what it means that we've been called to be holy as you are holy, Lord, because you are holy, and that you would make us like you, our God, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that you would make us a people that live in a world of trial and difficulty and rebellion and wickedness and evil, and that we would live as those who are, have been separated and redeemed, that we would keep ourselves from the evil one, and that you would use us in the lives of those around us, that they too may know of the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We pray, our God, that you would work these truths in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.